Hey everybody, it's Father Edward Looney, the host of How They Love Mary and author of the new book, How They Love Mary, 28 Life-Changing Stories of Devotion to Our Lady, available from Sophia Institute Press. I am enjoying so much my weekly conversations with different guests about the lessons as we go through the book one by one, person by person. Did you know that you could wear a sock honoring many of the different individuals who are found in How They Love Mary? In the month of June, I'll be talking about St. Therese of Lisieux and St. Kateri Tekakwitha and Fulton Sheen. Those three individuals all have a sock at Sock Religious. And when I talk about St. Faustina, well, she's the visionary who received the Divine Mercy. And you can find a pair of Divine Mercy socks at Sock Religious. Head over to Sock Religious by using the link in the show notes and begin wearing socks for the glory of God and in honor of the saints. Hello, my name is Father Edward Looney, and you're listening to the podcast, How They Love Mary, a podcast that I hope will either be the beginning or the deepening of your Marian devotion. We are continuing our weekly series as we focus on my latest book from Sophia Institute Press called How They Love Mary, 28 Life-Changing Stories of Marian Devotion, available from any Catholic bookstore or wherever you buy books. And... One of the people I feature in How They Love Mary as we've been going through and talking about them, and this week our feature is St. Faustina. Lots of people have a familiarity with St. Faustina because she is the apostle of divine mercy that Jesus began appearing to her back in the 1930s and revealed to her the divine mercy chaplet, the divine mercy novena that people pray from Good Friday all the way to Divine Mercy Sunday. There were many promises, and there's the diary that the Marians of the Immaculate Conception produce and publish of St. Faustina. They are a religious order that really the message of Divine Mercy is alive because they were able to carry the diary away from the communist government and bring it to the United States. So I'm very excited today to speak with someone who has been really touched by St. Faustina. There were any number of people I could have interviewed, but I always had in mind to interview Elizabeth Ficacelli. And I've been familiar with her books for a while. And uh, another thing is, is back in the day, I used to serve as godly counsel on the show Morning Glory. And on EWTN, and Elizabeth co-hosted sometimes when uh, Gloria couldn't be on the show or whatever. And so uh, we've shared uh, the airwaves together. And today I'm excited to have her on my podcast. And Elizabeth is an inspirational Catholic speaker for international audiences. She guest hosts. And just recently, I was on The Miracle Hunter, but the week before, she guest hosted for Michael O'Neill. Uh, she has written several books, and we're going to be talking about one of her books in particular today, Therese, Faustina, and Bernadette, three saints who challenged my faith, gave me hope, and taught me how to love. So thank you so much, Elizabeth, for joining me. Hi, Father Ed. It's so good to be on the airwaves with you again. Yes, right. I, um, yeah, you know, once uh, 
I left the Morning Glory show. I actually started this podcast right after that. And so it's been my way of continuing. I, I love interviewing people. It's just one of the things yeah, I enjoy doing. Um, and so actually back when I was on Morning Glory, they changed the format of the show and it was no longer interview based. And I, I just didn't feel it was a good fit for me anymore. So that was kind of why I left the show and uh, and so forth. But uh, yeah, I just really enjoy having conversations with people about topics that I love. And right now, to talk about your book, Therese, Faustina, and Bernadette, just a few weeks ago, I had an episode on St. Therese. I spoke with a Catholic musician. He wrote a song about Therese and shower on me roses from the garden. That's the refrain of the song. And mm. uh, he shared his own story about how he asked St. Faustina for assistance in his discernment. He was a seminarian, thought maybe he was called to married life, asked for a rose. He got the rose, left the seminary, and the same day met his wife. And so he shared that story a few <laughs> episodes back. And, you know, the, I want to talk a lot about Faustina, but I got to tell you, Therese, Faustina, and Bernadette, they're like three of my girlfriends, you know, I love them all. And uh, the St. Bernadette right now is touring her relics across the United States and people are being reintroduced to her and uh, seeking her prayers, her intercession. And I've been to Lourdes countless times. Uh, I've been to Navarre where she's buried. So uh, I might just want to talk about all three of these individuals <laughs> and maybe as a blast. Hey, I don't mind. <laughs> as a blast from the past, as we talked about Therese a few episodes back. Um, what's the role of Therese in your life? Did you ever pray that Rose Novena and did you get a rose? Like growing up, so for starters. But that wonderful little saint worked her way into my life when I was eight years old and I found a medal on the sidewalk walking to school, walking to public school, you know. And I had enough Catholic friends to know that this was a Catholic medal and I assumed that that woman with the veil and the rose in her she had roses in her arms and smile and she was pretty. But I figured she was Mary because that was about the only thing about Catholics is that they had this thing for Mary, right? <laughs> sure, sure. I, I just, for some reason, and, and on the back of that medal was this, this, this saying that said, after my death, I will let fall shower of roses. That meant nothing to me. I didn't understand what that meant. That wasn't anything familiar with my Sunday school stories about the Bible. But I kept that medal for some reason, and it wouldn't be till many years later in my early 20s when I would church and begin to read about all these wonderful saints that you were just talking about. I discovered St. Therese is the saint that has been in this medal that I've had on my, you know, in my jewelry box all my life. So I really felt even at eight years old when I wasn't even Catholic, I wasn't even on my radar, she was already there. And then she would become like my patron saint for uh, my whole ministry of writing because she the subject of my first adult book. They are at, at, from the get-go, and and uh, so she's like my patron, um, and, and like she came to me first. You know, she was the first saint that kind of introduced herself to me in this this kind of very subtle way at first. But once I read her book, oh my gosh, you know, Shower of Roses, I was you know just head over heels in love with her, um, and I I just realized she's been kind of keeping me all my life, and that's what ended up. Um, getting me to collect people's stories that had asked for her intercession, as you said, Father Edward, about the, the roses and all these incredible stories of people getting those prayers answered. And I put those in a compilation in a book called Shower of Heavenly Roses. And that's probably been my bestseller of all my 15 books. That one just keeps going and going and going. There is just this undying love for St. Therese. And just real quick, my favorite little story of someone reading that book 
said, you know, oh, I love these these stories. They were so good. And I really enjoyed the book. And she asked me, but how did you get the pages to smell like roses? Every time I opened the book, I could smell. I'm like, yeah, no, that's just a special gift for you because we didn't do anything special with the book to make it smell like roses. But isn't that funny? She just kept experiencing roses every time she read the stories. Wow. that You know, that's a, a <laughs> gift, right? And uh, I think sometimes, you know, I live very close to the Champion Shrine and people remark that they sense or they smell uh, roses or other flowers and, you know, there are none around them, but they kind of get this aura. And so it is this spiritual gift and oftentimes meant to be a consolation. Uh, for that person and to strengthen their own faith, which interestingly enough, you know, that your subtitle and sometimes publishers give you your subtitle, but three saints who challenged my faith gave me hope and taught me how to love. So all three of these saints taught you faith, hope and love, or do you attach no, faith and to see, one of them? Yeah. And, and no, as a matter of fact, that was the subhead that I wrote because when, when I was asked to write a book about these three saints, um, because I had spoken on them at different times, and, and one of the publishers saw that and said, hey, would you write this? And this is Ave Maria Press, by the way, the publisher of this book. And when I thought about, well, how could I tell the stories of these three saints and what they meant in my life? And then I started to think about what's the, they're all very virtuous, of course, but what's the one virtue that really, and for Therese, I thought it was love. I mean, it was just, she, everything was about her love. Her vocation was love. I mean, she talks about love. For um, Faustina, and we can dive into this deeper in this podcast, I thought hope came to mind because the, the message of mercy, divine mercy, there is no hope because that message is for everybody. You know, even on the precipice of hell, if you turn to God and, and you know, and turn to his mercy, you can be saved. So that's like super, super hope. And for Bernadette, little Bernadette, I gave her the virtue of faith. Because of all the um, adversity she faced, this little 14-year-old having these visions and standing up against the police, the, the clergy, the, you know, and she held firm to that faith. Faith, hope, and, and, and love, you know, these, these three um, virtues just seem to really package them. And so that's kind of how I wrote the book, through that prism of, of faith, hope, and love, and, and each of these uh, the saints and how I saw they really lived that out and then inspired that in me. Well, before we turn to St. Faustina, who I really want to focus a lot of our time on, let's talk a little bit about St. Bernadette. She's such a, a beautiful little girl who believes what is what she's seeing. She converses with this woman. She digs in the ground. People mock her. People have seen the song of Bernadette, so they know a little bit about her. They know the story of Our Lady of Lourdes. How did St. Bernadette win you over? Well, that was a uh, publisher um, deal as well. That was Paulus Press, who approached me and said, would you write a book to commemorate the 150th anniversary of the apparitions? That's going back to like 2008. And and I'm like, well, gee, I'd love to do that. But there's one little problem. I'd never been to France. I'd never been to Lourdes. And I didn't know all that much about the basic story, like you say, in never. But I decided, you know what, be, I'm just going to keep the options open. I got my passport updated and, and whatever. And as I started to research and say, well, what could I do that would be new and different and everything? I, I saw some stuff going on over in the shrine at that point with considering maybe um, changing up some of the ways they look at some of the healings that go on over there. And long story short, I got connected with um, Marlene Watkins from the North American Hospitality uh, society that takes uh, volunteers, American volunteers over there. I got hooked up with, arranged uh, me to get over there 
And to go over as a journalist and a pilgrim at the same time, I got to interview all these people. They arranged translators. I got the bishop, the medical director, the head of hospitality, chaplains, uh, volunteers, you name it. And the reason she was so gung-ho about me coming over there to write it is she felt we really needed a up-to-date, accurate book in English on Lourdes because... Just like that song of Bernadette, there's a few things that are a little embellishments that aren't really the story. And she really wanted an accurate story. And she me with some of the, the leading experts uh, on the story of Lourdes and some priests that were just amazing. And so that's how that book uh, came about. So I was totally discovering Bernadette as I was writing about her. But I just I felt really connected with her to me. She was she had when you read about like the books like uh, Father Renate Lawrenton is probably one of the leading authors on her. And you read about her and, and words that she actually said, like in the comment, she had a sense of humor and she was, she uh, had a great personality. She reminded me of, uh, in the book, in the book, the novel, Little Women, the character of Joe. She had a very strong personality and she needed to, to survive everything she survived. Uh, so I just really uh, felt, and by the way, I did get to see, they also came through. Um, here in South Carolina, I couldn't believe it. I thought they'll never come around here, but sure enough, they did to a parish about uh, 45 minutes away. So we got to venerate those. And if, if your listeners are thinking, well, wait a minute, I thought she's incorrupt. The answer is yes, she is. Her body's incorrupt. But you know, when they were doing the, when they're dig- digging up the body and, and going through that canonization process, they do customarily remove little bone splinters and whatever hair and, and, you know, parts of the body, cloth from the body. And those relics have been distributed in, in throughout Europe. And that's what's touring right now is some, some of those relics. What was your experience in Lourdes as you prayed at the grotto, as you maybe went into the baths, the piscines? Did you have a very powerful oh. experience there? Oh, my gosh. You know, what I really felt, Father Edward, is that Lourdes is not a, a shrine or a museum to the past, but it's very much active in the present. I was so struck that you know, first of all, there is this grotto, it's still there. And, you know, yes, everything's kind of been built around it, but you can still go there and it's, and it's all quiet when you actually go to the grotto. And, and it's this place of prayer, whether it's these, all these little churches that are in there, whether it's the grotto itself, the station, but it's people from all over the world uh, speaking all these different languages. They're on their knees in prayer. There's procession lights for us is we were part of the the famous candlelight procession that people I'm sure have seen on television, you know, was just a throng of, you know, candles out there. And to this woman, Marlene Watkins, who arranged it all over, uh, my husband and I were, um, got to help lead the rosary in English. And just, you know, I've spoken to audiences in hundreds of the thousands, but this, you know, probably several thousand tens of thousands i don't know all we could see from that stage was just this endless sea of flame you know it was so cool so beautiful and our pilgrimage in particular was one where we had um people with disabilities so it was a special pilgrimage so we were really watching up close and personal we got in the baths it was just every every moment of that pilgrimage was was amazing and 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 god opened all those doors for me because there was no way i could have written that book without those doors opening and, and getting those interviews and really getting the backstory of Lords and and so from that experience on Bernadette has just become another one of my spiritual girlfriends. And then of course there's Saint Faustina and people are very devoted to the devotion that she 
promoted that she received, that of the Divine Mercy. Lots of people pray the Divine Mercy Chaplet every day, and they perhaps try to do so at the three o'clock hour. Lots of people pray the Divine Mercy Novena. So when did you become familiar with the story in, of St. Faustina and the devotion of Divine Mercy? So I became aware, um, before she became the uh, the popular saint she is today in our country, um, you know, John, uh, St. Pope John Paul II had canonized her in the year 2000. But I encountered her and her diary that you mentioned before, Father Edward, um, in the mid-90s, like 1995. And I just got this diary passed to me. I did not know Sister but I read this Divine Mercy in My Soul diary, and it's a big, thick diary, but it's so much filled with the words of Jesus as he imparted to this nun from the 1930s. And the more in this diary, the more I thought, man, this they're talking about this day and age, our modern day and age. I believe we're living right now in the age of mercy. And, you know, not that she lived in an easy time because she was in Poland, you know, right at the time of the Nazi invasion. So, you know, 1930s before the World War II. So that was a dangerous you know, evil time. Boy, I really think he was coming to the world back then for us. But I read the book and I was on fire um, to share that message with others. And I was in a little faith sharing group with other young couples at the time raising our kids. And I was all prepared to teach them about this wonderful saint and the message of mercy, how she's a secretary of mercy and how it applies to all of us. And it's got such hope to the message. And just And I was doing, like you said, that chaplet. No one was doing that at the time. I was doing a chaplet. I had the image on my desk. I was getting ready to, uh, they said about um, a, a confession that's important to make the week after Easter. Now, of course, we know that today as Divine Mercy Sunday. But back then, in the mid-90s, that was not a universal feast day yet. That was not established. So I was doing all these things. And, you know, Father Edward, when things are going really well... <laughs> Sometimes that's when things all of a sudden take a turn. I don't know if you've ever experienced it, but that's exactly what happened to me. So um, I guess what happened is I was uh, all gung-ho and, and Holy Week's coming up and, and I'm just, everything's going great. And we had had um, two of our four boys at that time. Our first was four years old and the second was a newborn baby. And this child never slept. So I was completely sleep deprived on end he just was awake he was a party boy all all night long you know didn't want to go to sleep and i was tired and grumpy and impatient and one morning when my four-year-old was dragging his feet about getting ready for preschool i totally lost it and i mean i you know when i tell this story when i do like on my parish mission and i i hit the confession night which is the second night and i tell the story i'm usually in tears because it's still a raw pain for me that i i just was so angry and explosive at my child, my poor four-year-old who, who didn't even see this coming. And I, I it was just a, an event that really filled me with horrific shame and, and uh, humil humility, you know, and just, oh, how could I just be this terrible mother? And I just did this to my child who, you know, is just not getting ready for the bus on time and stuff. So I had to go to confession. I, I, I knew I had to go to confession and say, you know, oh, God, I am so sorry for this. I don't want to, you know, hit my child. I don't, I don't want to be a terrible mother. I was just, you know, and all that. So, you know, I go to confession. Well, here's the hitch pin for me. I was a Catholic convert about 10 years at that time. And I embraced every aspect of my Catholic faith except for one. And that was confession. 
I never understood the whole sacrament. I didn't get it. I didn't understand the priest's role in it. I didn't understand it was an encounter with the living Christ because it is a sacrament, one of our seven. I just saw it as this horrible foot-dragging experience that was terribly embarrassing and um, humiliating. And I was afraid the priest would tell other people what I said in the confessional. So I was one of those ignorant Catholics that used to go across town to another parish where the priest didn't know me because I, I didn't understand the sacrament. I was misguided with the sacrament. Mm. And um, But I decided that day because I felt so bad about what I had done that I was going to go to my own parish and I was going to go to my own and I went in there and I'm, cr- and, and you know, it was a face to face and I'm just crying and crying and crying. And I just, my kid and I'm a terrible mother. And I was so, I was just filled with just self-loathing, just terrible feelings about myself. Now, you know, as a priest, he listens, he gives some advice and then he gives absolution through the process. Now I felt like I was wearing this coat of armor. Anything he said to me was like bouncing off me. It wasn't getting in. I was hardly listening to it. I just couldn't let go of this terrible feeling I had. And I'm sitting on that little chair and then I realized, okay, he just said his last thing. He gave me absolution. Now I got to leave. And I, Father, I felt like I couldn't even get off that chair. I was just like the weight of the world was on my shoulders. It was a horrible, terrible, dark place. And then God and his wonderful mercy, and I credit Satan for this, I had this incredible miracle happen, and that was when I finally did get up off that chair and I put my hand on the doorknob of that confessional. I was going back out into the church. I suddenly felt crossing that threshold that it was like someone had put this bucket of water, this this warm water that in a moment just poured over me and washed me clean. I mean, it was this tangible feeling of being washed and going from the weight of the world in my shoulder to the feeling like I was floating, like ecstasy almost i mean like giddiness just complete freedom and joy and there was just no way i could have done that myself that because i was beating myself up so bad in the confessional and what the words that came to me was jesus's words to faustina who was said you know i want to pour out an ocean of mercy on my i had read those words and i was excited about those words but all of a sudden they were being applied to me and I would realize through the passage of time that that experience, which my heart and mind, a confession forever, because now I realize what confession was about. And, and not that it wasn't, it's still not even hard to this day. Oh, I don't really want to talk about that, but I'm going anyway. But I always feel good. And I've never had that miracle happen, that tangible miracle. But I know that every time I go and I give a heartfelt confession and every time we all go and make that heartfelt confession, we are washed clean. You know, we may not feel it, but we are. And that's that beautiful gift of mercy and hope that comes to us through confession. So I really credit Faustina and God for giving me that opportunity as a convert that struggled with this sacrament for so long, showing me what forgiveness is all about, showing me what mercy is about. And then they would use this experience. I didn't know it at the time, but they would use this experience because then I wrote an article about it. And I got all this feedback. Then it's worked its it's worked its way into presentations. And every time I'm telling this story, there's always people that are coming up to me. I had I think the record is someone after this presentation came back after 60 years of being away from confession because I go into the benefits and and how how you know I go into more than my personal story. I go into all the things that are about the the, the sacrament that are so helpful to know and all that. But it's, it's incredible. It's such a gift, and, and I wish more Catholics would take advantage of it. 
Yeah, as you were sharing that, and speaking about the ocean of mercy, in a sense, the image that came to my mind was that we're drowning so often in our world. We're drowning because of sin, but yet in the ocean of mercy, it's Jesus saving us and pulling us up and allowing us really to float and to to swim in that ocean of mercy, in a sense, to, to receive that great gift of his forgiveness and his grace. And really, we're refreshed, as you said, when you left that, that confessional. Uh, we are truly set free uh, from all of our sins, all of our past, uh, and now we're called to live in mercy and to live with faith and hope and love of neighbor and such. So, um, yeah, it's such a powerful image, that idea of the ocean of mercy. And to think about it flooding, you know, he says, Jesus tells Faustina that on Divine Mercy Sunday, he opens up the floodgates of his mercy. And, and so there is this image that I think that really we can evoke in our, our mind and in our imagination of what that's like. Absolutely. And and as I said earlier, you know, the, the message of mercy is so powerful because it is available to everyone. God is a merciful father. You know, that's not, that, just because she got this message in the 30s doesn't mean this is like this brand new message. It's very scriptural that God is a God of mercy. But I think as we see, you know, we were talking about Therese earlier. Therese grew up in the 1800s, and, and they were into that Jansen. God wasn't a merciful God. He was a, you know, a, a punishing judge. And, and you know, there was fear in, in a lot of the Catholics in France at that time in history. So we've seen, you know, where we've kind of lost sight of the merciful God. And I, I think that's why in the 30s he came to Faustina. He chose her as his special secretary and messenger of mercy for the world. And her diary has just touched so many lives. And it, it is so neat to see even the littlest children being able to, you know, recite the, the chaplet and all that. And I, I don't know how many times a day it just comes out of my mouth, but, you know, Jesus, I trust in you. Jesus, I trust in you. It's, you know, it's always, it, it's so it's such a living. And that's what I love about these saints. They're just not these heroes from the past, but they are alive. Their messages, their, their words, Ample. It's all alive. They're there for our help. They're they're there for our not not only being the model of virtues, but they're there for literally for our intercession and and guiding us and protecting us and praying for us and showing us the way. And that's why I just love them. I mean, they, I literally talk about them as my spiritual girlfriends, and uh, so I get excited just talking about them to, to other people. Well, we're talking about your book, Therese, Faustina, and Bernadette, these three saints who challenged your faith, gave you hope, and taught you how to love. And earlier you mentioned that St. Faustina really was the one that you associated with that virtue of hope. And anybody who reads the Divine Mercy know... Uh, Anybody who reads the Divine Mercy Journal of St. Faustina, I think, encounters that hope. I know I often will quote this one passage from the, Divine Mer from the Diary of Divine Mercy, and it's this, that when someone, for example, at the end of their life, if we have, I think sometimes we might despair over someone, you know, for example, like if someone dies suddenly, we as their loved ones who they've left behind, we might wonder. Are they with God? Were they ready to meet him? Were they in a state of grace? All of these questions kind of come to mind, and maybe we are worried about their eternal salvation. And I've often found that the words in the Divine Mercy diary 
that Jesus says that a soul is given three opportunities to repent at the end of their life and really to make that choice for God. So I think that itself is a great message of hope. I know that I've shared those words of Jesus from this private revelation. So again, this isn't scriptural or dogmatic or anything, but these words from private revelation have comforted especially individuals who have lost a family member to suicide. And so I think there is great hope then because of this devotion to divine mercy. Right. And, you know, as Christians, of course, we're called to, you know, to to people of hope. And at the time I was writing that book, um, I think a Pope, it was Benedict XVI, was writing an encyclical on hope. You know, and that message just kept coming to me because we live in this world, look around us, there's so much to be hopeless about. In mind, we know who's on the throne, we know who wins in the end. And no matter how crazy the world gets, and it gets crazier by the day, it seems, you know, we have to hold fast to that hope. And that's what's going to get us through because, of course, the enemy knows the opposite, that that despair, you know, and and hopelessness, that those are his weapons, those are his tools. And, and so I know for me, speaking from my experience, it's so easy for me to get my head turned in the wrong direction on a given day. And I'm like, no, I can't do that. I have to be a person of hope. I know how this goes. And, you know, the other thing about, of mercy is is not only um, about God's mercy in our own lives, but then we're called to be people of mercy to others. You know, we, we're called to be missionaries of mercy ourselves, and, and that's in our circle of influence. So that's in our families, that's in our, our communities, our, our workplaces. We are called to be people of mercy, and we're living in an age where, you know, the, the society gets so polarized. You know, whether it's politics, whether it's religion, whether it's gender, it doesn't matter. It's just it, that's part of the enemy's. So sometimes it's it's easy to be, well, I'm not being very merciful to that person because he voted for someone I didn't like or she believes that. And I don't you know what? No, we're called to be merciful as Jesus is merciful to all of us. So it's it's a call to action on our part as well, Father. What other lessons of hope does St. Faustina offer us? You know, I think that. Faustina um, teaches me a lot, when, and really all three of them do the same thing in this regard. All three of these saints were very simple um, women. They weren't from high society. They weren't super educated. In fact, in her case, quite the opposite, only a third grade education. They lived in trouble sometimes, as we do now. And yet God takes these blank sheets of paper like we are. And and can write great things with them. You know, he is capable of doing so much if we are open channels and open conduits to his grace. And I look at someone like Faustina and I say, here she was, had third grade education, was very, very poor, you know, from a farming family and 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 no happening except for like her superior and her confessor, but her own sisters in her convent never knew until after her death what was going on. They had no idea. Even the message of mercy were getting out, and yet they didn't know it was a sister from their own community. They looked upon her as not very bright. She had the menial job, you know, doorkeeper, kitchen worker, um, no great gifts, no great power, no great status, and yet God elevates her to this tremendous place. In one of his messages, he says, he's got a special place, and I mean, he's got a special place for all of us, but he's got a special place for her. He talks about that in the diary. Um, task he gives us that gives me a lot of hope that you know god can take my gifts and talents whatever i bring to the altar so to speak and he can 
take that and do great things with it. So none of us can sit back and be going, hey, uh, you know, I can't be one of those saints. I'm too young, I'm the wrong color, I'm the wrong status, you know, too rich, too poor, live in the wrong place, or live in the wrong time. No, he can take anything we're willing to give him and do great things. So that's a bunch of hope that I got from her. St. Faustina, truly an inspired woman who received these apparitions of Jesus. Also, she had a few apparitions of Our Lady. She was devoted to Our Lady. Uh, in the book, How They Love Mary, I mentioned that she would pray for a time, you know, maybe a nine-day novena of a thousand Hail Marys in a day. So you just think about us praying 53 Hail Marys and one rosary. And she's praying mm -hmm. a thousand Hail Marys in a day. So she is a woman who had a profound faith and a, a deep trust in God and, and wanted to pray and to uh, especially pray for certain situations. She saw and had visions of some great devastations that could take place. And, and so she really dedicated her life to prayer uh, so that the mercy of God might be realized by all of us. And, and uh, yeah, just truly a, a wonderful saint. And we're grateful, especially to Pope John Paul II, who, you know, really rescued St. Faustina in terms of the, the popular devotion of the church, that St. Faustina, yes. the Polish Pope, he uh, knew of her, knew of her diary. For a time, the diary was actually on the book, the Index of Forbidden Books because of a bad translation. But he yep. gets it restored and then ultimately fulfills the requests of Jesus to have that first Sunday after Easter as Divine Mercy Sunday. He canonizes St. Faustina. So these are great hallmarks for the Polish Pope. Yeah, you're right. As a young priest, he was very much aware of the messages of mercy because he grew up in this country. Um, and he had read the accurate diary in the beginning. So he knew the messages were, were true. And so, as you said, he was very, very much um, a key player in, in getting that ban lifted because, as you said, they, the, the, um, it was John the 23rd, I guess, his copy that he got was already tainted. The communists did not want this message getting out. They were doing everything they could to squelch culture, religion. You know, that's how they over people. That's how it would take over countries. So they didn't want a strong Catholic presence, and they certainly didn't want this message of mercy. <laughs> he doesn't want the message of mercy. That's working against him. So, uh, yeah, so there was quite a few hurdles, but you know what? God, that's the other message of hope. If this does work, it will be vindicated, you know, and, and he did in his perfect timing, because this is the age of mercy. You know, we all have this chance um, God said, before I come back as, as the just judge, this, you know, I will come back as the merciful father. And so we are in this age and, and so many things at our fingertips that we can grab onto our mass, our scripture, our saints, our rosaries, our chaplets, and, and, and walk forward as people of hope, especially today, the world needs it. As we've been talking about St. Faustina and also talked about St. Bernadette, both of them were visionaries. They received apparitions. They were a part of miraculous phenomena uh, in their own lives. They witnessed uh, really heaven uh, as they had their revelations and their visions. And I just want to touch upon just briefly another book you wrote, just because this is a podcast about the Blessed Mother um, called How They Love Mary. And one of the books you wrote was Bleeding Hands, Weeping Stone. True stories yes. of divine wonders, miracles, and messages. And, 
you can see every now and again, and uh, and you were just the co-host, as we mentioned earlier on, on the Miracle Hunter, and so sometimes he chases down some of these things, but there are statues of the Blessed Mother that weep, that cry, that have tears coming down. There are statues of Our Lady that sometimes have bloodied tears, and so you, you look at it and you wonder if you're looking at a horror film. There have been weeping icons. I just want to ask, what do you make of these weeping images? And, you know, why is there such a great curiosity by us? Because people will flock there. You know, there, there's a water stain on the bridge somewhere, you know, people and think it's the Blessed Mother and they'll go there. So, so why is it that we're drawn to, for example, weeping statues? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because that book came out of, my own interest when I was uh, a new Catholic, I was 23, 24 years old, and the first thing I read about in the Catholic faith were these miracles, because we didn't have those growing up, the Eucharistic miracles, the incorrupt bodies. For me, it was kind of sensational, it was exciting, it was different, it was, it was wow. As I got deeper into my faith, my reading, I would say, mature a little bit more, in, and I was reading about you know, church history, and I was reading about, you know, encyclicals and saints and, and the classics. I was reading, you know, St. Augustine. And, you know, so I was really deepening because that's the beauty of our faith. There's so much you can get into. I, I when I look in the miracles that you're mentioning, I'm often, I wrote the book, I was asked to write that book to, for like maybe uh, younger people, like confirmation age, high school, maybe young adult, you know, college age. Um, who drift, who, who are like bored with their faith. This stuff can wow them, you know? So I wow them in chapter after chapter with all these fascinating things. But what I wrap up that book with is this message for all of us. And by the way, that book's really popular with adults. So it doesn't matter that if you're, you know, an adult, you can read the book. But what I, I, I use this analogy, I say, picture yourself in, in front of this beautiful, beautiful cathedral, this beautiful basilica, whatever, most beautiful church you've ever seen, you know, the angels, the the, uh, the carved wooden doors, it's, it's beautiful. You walk in to this, this lobby of this church, this vestibule, and it's the most beautiful place you've ever seen, and there's flowers and candles and stained glass and paintings and this light streaming in, and you think you've, you're just in heaven, it's just amazing. But if you turned around and went back out the doors and back into the street, you forgot to do the most important thing, which is to go through the next set of doors into the church, into the sanctuary, where the greatest of miracles, which is the Eucharist, Jesus, present to us today and consumable to us every day, that's the miracle of the church. But so I use the miracles to get people's attention and encourage my readers to get other people's attentions through that. Capture them first, but then we want to lead them to, you know, miracles still happen. And there's the greatest miracle of all happens on every Catholic altar in every Catholic church around the world. And then sitting in that tabernacle and all throughout the world. So you lead them to the deeper reality. But I think God uses those, those miracles just for that reason. They speak a language that can reach a lot of people who might not crack open a, a deep book on theology or who may not darken the doorway of a church, you know, who, who is on the fringe there. But um, I think they're fascinating. And of course, you always want Holy Mother, who takes her time and has a, a very set process of which are really authentic and which aren't, because we always have to keep the enemy in mind, knowing that imitates some of this stuff. So we don't want to follow wrong stuff. We want to go with our church's things. So if our local bishop is saying he's not encouraging people to go to a particular place or follow a particular person, li listen to your bishop. Trust, as I said earlier, God will vindicate anything that he wants truthful 
and we are in the time when the enemy is active. So follow Holy Mother Church. But there's lots of approved miracles. St. Padre Pio had about every gift you can imagine. Read it, love it, d- d- you know, just relish in this God who is a supernatural God who's capable of anything. Just to remind us, he's not this faraway God in heaven that we can't see or touch, but he's very active, really wants to be part of our life. So use those miracles to embolden your faith, embolden others' faith, maybe your kids' faith. But just know that our great, great miracle is the Eucharist, and it's available to us at all times. I am a priest of the Diocese of Green Bay, Wisconsin. I grew up north of Green Bay in a small little town called Oconto. And about mm-hmm. an hour and a half drive from where I grew up in a town in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, there was a stigmatist named Francis. That was what they called him. But his uh, real name was Irving Hool. But he was a man who literally had stigmata. And I went on some of these bus trips with my grandma or whoever and went to see the stigmatist. And it was just something that was always very impactful, like a reminder to me, like, these things are real. And if this man has stigmata, then God is real. It's going back to St. Bernadette, watching the song of Bernadette growing up and seeing that story. I'm like, well, God is real. And so what you just said, really, that hit home with me as a young person, that these miraculous phenomena uh, point to the fact that God is real. And I love how you bring us then well, then the Eucharist is as well. And so that's powerful. So yeah, wonderful work and drawing our attention to those great miracles. Yeah, and, and you know, the Bible is full of miracles. When we go back and read, starting with the Old Testament, there was miracle, miracle, miracle. So why would God stop, right? You know, he's he, he continues and we see it in our day. There's continual reports of apparitions, weeping icons, you know, Eucharistic miracles. And the church, you know, continues to investigate and and approve the ones that they feel are authentic. And it's just God's doing, just go back to the age of mercy. He's doing everything he can say to us to like, get on the ark, <laughs> get on the ark, people, you know. And so he just keeps giving us, because that's our good, good God. He just keeps giving us so many chances to say, yeah, I'm real. I love, I want to be involved in your life. Turn to me, you know, don't be journeying alone and. And yet so many people continue to do that. But that's why we're supposed to be the light and, and tell them about all the great things about God that, that we've experienced. And that's always, I always come back to that too. The best thing you can do is just be your own witness and say, hey, this is what God did for me in my life. People can't argue with that. And it's very attractive, actually. You've written several books. We've talked about two of them now today. The book about Therese, Faustina, and Bernadette, How These Three Holy Women Tell You Faith, Hope, and Love. And then also uh, the the book about the miracles, the bleeding statues and weeping statues, etc. So if people want to learn more about your books, your writings, all of that, you have a website so they could head on over there. Is that the best place to find you? Yeah, sure. It's just my name, Elizabeth Ficcicelli, and that's F-I-C-O-C-E-L-L-I, Elizabeth Ficcicelli. Um, dot com and, and you can find out about my books, my speaking, my broadcast work, and whatever else I'm doing. Well, that's great. And then are you active at all on any social media? Um, I, you know, I do have Facebook, but to be honest with you, with COVID, I have not been keeping up with a lot of that, doing a lot of voiceover. That's what I've been doing primarily, um, living in a very remote place, but uh, just um, 
continuing to kind of, in a way, I'm doing a lot more praying. And I think this is just a quiet time for me right now, God's asking me. And, but, but then I get calls like this and or from Michael O'Neill, and I do some radio work and always happy to help out there too. So yeah, I just do what the Lord gives me each day. Well, sometimes it's in those little moments, those seasons of life where God invites us to greater prayer, that he's inviting us to something even better in the future. And so through that prayer, he's preparing us for that. Yes, very much so. Very much so. Well, wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Elizabeth, for sharing about those three women saints who I love so much. I did not include St. Bernadette uh, in my book. I should have, uh, but I do plan. Uh, one of my intentions is to write a new kind of essay monthly, kind of adding to this corpus of how they love Mary. So it'll be published online. But uh, I want to write about St. Bernadette. Uh, I'm privileged to be a preacher for when her relics come here to the Diocese of Green Bay. So I'm celebrating one of the masses with the relics. And so uh, yes, looking forward to yeah. sharing how she loved Mary uh, in that way. So, um, yeah, I can't wait for that. And, yeah, thank you so much for, for sharing your love of these three holy women and why we should love them, too. Oh, it's a great pleasure, Father Edward, and God bless you on, on this mission that God has you doing, and certainly for your priesthood, which is just this beautiful gift for the church. We thank you for both of those. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. I am honored by how many people listen to How They Love Mary. I hope that you'll continue to listen over the upcoming months as we continue to go through, lesson by lesson, my book, How They Love Mary. 28 Life-Changing Stories of Devotion to Our Lady. If you are touched by today's episode, consider sharing it on social media. And if you haven't already done so, please rate and review the podcast so that it might help others find it as well. Again, thanks so much for listening. Know of my prayers for you. Please pray for me. God bless you and Mary intercede for you.